Well, today, thanks for coming. Um, today we have John Owen from University of Virginia, who it's a great pleasure to have him since I've known him since 1994 when he was a grad student at Harvard and I was a postdoc, which tells you our age difference, I guess, somewhat. <laughs> Under it actually understates it. Um, but John, John is a professor of politics in the Woodrow Wilson Department of Politics at the University of Virginia, and he's a faculty fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies and Culture. And more important for the IR people, John is now the new editor of Security Studies, so he's the guy that you're going to have, you know, be cursing under your breath or, or praising, depending on what your letter says. Um, so anyway, uh, John had a, a, a really important book. Um, his first book, Liberal Peace and Liberal War, was very provocative, controversial, but um, I think it was pretty on the money. But anyway, it made a big splash. And that was in 1997, and it's taken until 2010, but I think it's worth the wait. I, looked, I actually commented on several early incarnations of this uh, book which is now called The Clash of Ideas in World Politics, Transnational Networks, States, and Regime Change, 1510 to 2010, and it's at Princeton. And it examines how the struggle between secularism and Islamism in Muslim countries today reflects broader transnational trends in world history. So without further ado, here's John Owen. I am um, pretending to be a high-tech person. I have an iPad I'm going to give the talk from, but still figuring out how to set it up seamlessly. So let's see if this works. Yes, I think so. Okay. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, everybody, for, for having me. You know, Randy may not know this. He, he, um, he spurred me a little bit to finish this book. It was, we, we get together a few times a year in Washington for this event with John Eikenberry, and one time I walked in perfectly in, and said, you know, Randy's sitting there, and he says, so where's the book, or something, something like that, where's the book, and, you know, that kind of shook me up, but I he's right, and later he said, he, I didn't mean it, I was just joking, but, you know, actually that, that had a, a, a virtuous effect on my, um, I don't know, my work habits or something, and, and I had all this material sitting on hard drives and so on, and uh, decided to put it together, rather than despair of cobbling it together, just make it make it fit into a coherent, hopefully coherent whole. So that's, um, that's the book. Uh, I was actually here about five years ago and gave a talk on a piece of this. Some of you may have, have been there, but it, it was a, a paper that was kind of part of the work up to this, this book. Um, it's really good to be back, and I appreciate you all coming out today. And I, I don't know if it's raining, but I, I do appreciate your efforts to get here. Um, I have been influenced by a lot of people at the Mershon Center some of whom are sitting here, uh, one of whom, Jeffrey Parker, I, I learned a few minutes ago, is in France. So um, I was hoping finally to meet him. I really did use a lot of his material on uh, early modern Spain and Philip of Spain. And I got to borrow his office for the last hour. But in any case, uh, it's very good to be here. Um, the talk and the book on which it's based are, are, are called The Clash of Ideas in World Politics. Now let me um, say a little bit about the cover. 
I'm often asked about this cover. It's a matter of some controversy in my own family. Um, if, if a vote were taken in the family, this would not have ended up as the cover, but um, this is uh, a nightmarish image. It's, it's a monster with a Ku Klux Klan hood um, powered, if, I don't know if you can see, in this uh, cage, jitter-bugging African-Americans, uh, a Jewish prayer shawl in place of a loincloth. Uh, it's, it's storming across the Atlantic, uh, Statue of Liberty, uh, to, uh, to Europe. Um, this is a Nazi propaganda poster from 1944, from occupied Norway, uh, 1944, and versions of it were in the Netherlands and uh, um, some other places as well. Um, in this poster, the Germans are trying to convince the Norwegians that the coming Americans, uh, this is after D-Day, the coming Americans are not liberators, uh, but in fact are barbarous, decadent destroyers of um, uh, European culture. And the point of making this the cover uh, is that even the Second World War, which, which was surely about power, uh, for example, Germany's rivalry with Russia, uh, was also about ideas and culture. Uh, the belligerents believed that the way of life in Europe uh, and elsewhere was at stake, and they were right about that, of course. Think about the counterfactual had, um, you know, the country that produced this, this propaganda um, triumphed in the, the war, a point, a point often made that I think un, underexplored in, in IR. Let me bring us up to the present, though, to some, some smaller wars uh, but significant wars that involve this country, wars that are also in part about uh, way of life, how unusual really are American efforts at regime change in Iraq and Afghanistan? They, they were and are controversial, but how unusual are they? Well, some say they're not unusual for America, uh, and indeed the United States has, has done a lot of this kind of thing over the years. Uh, most famously and successfully in Japan and Germany after the Second World War, also somewhat less heavy-handedly in Italy, um, also more recently in places like Grenada, uh, Panama, Haiti, um, the Philippines a century ago, uh, maybe. Uh, now, some say this is a good thing or sometimes it's a good thing, Japan and Germany, that, that worked out well. Others say it's a bad thing or almost always a bad thing. Um, and many scholars say that the United States is peculiarly prone to do this kind of thing, this regime change, especially using force to change uh, other countries' regimes or maybe to preserve other countries' regimes. But in fact, uh, over the past 500 years, many other great powers have uh, done this kind, of, this kind of thing as well. And this is the first point I'd like to make today, and it might be the most important point, across half a millennium Every great power at one time or another, and often repeatedly, has done this kind of thing. Some research assistants and I collected more than 200 cases of what I call forcible regime promotion, or uses of force by at least one state to alter or preserve the domestic regime of another state. Now this graph depicts the frequency over time by decade um, of cases of forcible regime promotion. Um, now some of you might want to hear more about the data. Uh, 
I'm not going to spend much time in the talk itself on the data, uh, but I'm happy to talk more about it in the question and answer period if you'd like. Uh, I will say a few things, though, just to clarify. Um, not just any use of force registers on this, on this uh, table. Some wars, the War of Spanish Succession, uh, the First World War itself, uh, the Crimean War, um, are left off of this. Um, to qualify for inclusion here, it has to, uh, use of force has to, be, uh, has to involve the alteration or preservation of a regime of another uh, state. Now, usually, in most of these cases, I should say, the state, the intervening state, imposes its own regime, but not always. That sometimes it's just trying to get rid of an enemy regime. And the, you know, in the case of Iraq or Afghanistan now, it's not clear what's going to emerge in these um, countries. It's not going to be uh, Western-style liberal democracy. So it's not the case the United States imposed precisely its regime in those cases, but still got rid of a regime to set up another one. Also, this graph does not include uh, covert action. Uh, there's a lot of that going on at the same time, but the problem with covert action is you, you never know if you've gotten all the cases because it's covert. Um, also, it doesn't include economic sanctions. S some tools, states, in other words, use lots of tools to try to promote regimes. Um, uh, certainly, the United States has. And this is just uh, uses of force. Finally, uh, maybe not finally, okay, one, one other qualification. Uh, formal imperialism or colonialism doesn't register on this graph. Um, it's just state-to-state uh, forcible regime promotion. So the target of the regime promotion retains formal sovereignty. And I know that's, that's a problem. I have critics on that front to say I should have included imperialism. Um, I had reasons for just limiting it to formal, formally sovereign uh, states. But the point is the target state is not absorbed into an empire. It doesn't, it doesn't count on this, uh, on this graph. And uh, also, finally, I think at this point, keep in, number that, uh, keep in mind that the total number of states in the system varied enormously over this period. So um, this is 1510. This is almost the present day. And um, the, uh, the tallest bar here yeah, comes during the Thirty Years' War. Um, and at that point, I am, along with some scholars at least, um, counting lots and lots of, counting the separate estates of the Holy Roman Empire as their, their sovereign polities, though they're really semi-sovereign and it's, it's you know, have a long discussion in the book about why I think I'm, uh, I'm justified in counting them. But do, uh, I, I don't try to uh, normalize this by uh, or control for the number of states in the system, just raw numbers. I'm going to take the graph down in just a minute, but first uh, I'd like to call your attention to some, some patterns in the data. And the first is that foreign uh, forcible regime promotion takes place in three big waves, one, two, and three. And you have quiet periods, relatively quiet periods in between. And moreover, something that doesn't, you can't display in a, a bar graph like this, um, at least I couldn't figure out how to do it, is each of these three um, big clusters or waves has a, a, a kind of a cohesiveness to it. Um, in terms of content, by which I mean that the types of regime imposed in each of these three um, are roughly the same. So this had one type of, one set of competing regimes is imposed here, a, a different set here and a different set here. Uh, the first big wave on the left from roughly the 1520s through uh, the 1680s, Catholic, Lutheran, and Calvinist rulers 
all used force periodically to, um, to try to alter or preserve the established religion in target states. Now this sounds like a religious struggle. Today we might think that sounds like religion, not politics. This, of course, it, however, is a time before church and state were separated as they are today in the Western world. And which church was established, be it Catholic, Calvinist, what have you, had all sorts of political implications within a society. And if you like, I can talk about that as well. Uh, the second big way, the middle one, roughly the, the 1760s through 1850s, uh, in Europe and the Americas, um, states would invade one another and promote typically one of three regime types, absolute monarchy, constitutional monarchy, where the, the monarch is legally constrained, usually by some kind of parliament or assembly, uh, or third, republicanism. That's the second big wave. Third big wave is, is going to be most familiar. Uh, 20th century, over much of the world, uh, the three regimes um, being imposed, uh, though not exclusively, were liberal democracy or democratic capitalism, if you will, um, communism, and until 1945, fascism. And states would use force to promote these uh, one of these against the other. So that's one observation, three big waves, and each has a, a kind of a, a coherence within itself. The second observation I want to make from the data uh, is that within each of these periods, you can observe um, very violent times and some calm periods. Um, so, for example, in the second one, you have a real uptick here and then uh, a drop-off and then a slight uptick there as well. And that, this is true in all of them. You have ups and downs. And these appear random um, in, in terms of, uh, I, I like to put it this way, this graph displays some macro, uh, macro variation, the big waves, and some micro variation. Within each wave, there's, there's a smaller variation. So that's the second uh, big observation. A third um, is something that, that, again, doesn't show up in this graph. These periods were also marked not just by lots of forcible regime promotion, but uh, more than the usual regime instability, civil unrest, threats of revolution, um, ideologically based international alliances. Um, also, significantly for my argument, private transnational networks uh, that operated across state boundaries, uh, typically radical, but sometimes reformist in, in intention. These are things that don't, we don't always observe in international. We do sometimes, I think one of the interesting things that comes out of my research is, you know, debates like um, how important is ideology in international relations. I'm, I'm trying to de de bound that spatially and temporally. Sometimes, and sometimes in places it seems to matter a lot, and other times not so much. So um, I'll return to that point later. Now, I think the implications of this graph and the information it implies are, are huge. Um, I think it can affect how we think about some big questions in international relations, international history, all kinds of academic debates um, about states and transnational networks, uh, maybe how we think about the evolution of political philosophy, by which I mean um, I've been impressed in reading up on a lot of the history. Uh, a particular regime type or ideology or theory about the right regime um, can be affected by international politics, um, and that's a point I'll get to later as well. Most of what I do in the book 
is offer explanations for these two types of variation, the, the macro and the micro. Um, on the macro, I ask questions like, uh, why do these prolonged waves of forcible regime promotion emerge when and where they do? Why do they persist for as long as they do? Why do they fade away when they do? On the microvariation, I ask questions such as, within uh, each of these big waves, what accounts for the periods of calm? What accounts for the reignition of violence? So let me start. Is there somewhere to turn this off temporarily, maybe? It's not important, but. Press B. B, letter B. Got it. Thank you. How do I turn it back on? Press <laughs> okay, good. All right. Thanks. So let me start with a second set of questions um, on the microvariation. Take it in reverse order. And I'm not going to lay out the causal logic, which can be kind of tedious. Instead, I want to just tell a story. Um, I'll try to make it, it brief. It's from the first big wave 450 years ago. Um, and listen for some dynamics that might, might sound strangely familiar. I'm going to zero in on some events in Northwest Europe, England, France, the Netherlands, and Scotland in the 1550s through 1570s, roughly. All four of these countries were deeply divided between Catholics and Protestants. And each religious faction in each country uh, during this period uh, felt more loyalty toward its co-religionists and other polities than toward its fellow subjects at home that were of a different branch of Christianity. Uh, so England, for example, had been wrenched back and forth, and, and some of you know this history quite well, uh, wrenched back and forth between Protestantism and Catholicism several times in the preceding decades. Henry VIII broke with the Church of Rome in 1534. In 1553, his daughter, uh, Mary Tudor, took the crown and re-Catholicized England, um, placing the English church under papal authority again. And then in 1558, she died and her sister, um, half-sister Elizabeth Tudor, uh, became Queen Elizabeth and pulled uh, England back in the Protestant camp, made herself uh, with the approval of Parliament, head of the Church of England, declared herself the international Protestant champion. Now, all of Europe, uh, certainly Western and Central Europe, where these issues were very, very much alive, uh, was watching this continuing uh, drama unfolding in England uh, because it was about them. And that's a very important point. It, this wasn't just something happening in England. It had implications for uh, the Catholic-Protestant struggles in other countries. And there were reactions. Uh, Protestants living in Catholic countries, uh, this is quite well documented, were, were encouraged by Eliz Elizabeth's accession to the throne and her re-Protestantization, if that's a word, of England. Uh, they began to think they had a better shot at taking over their own countries. Catholics, meanwhile, became fearful. They feared Protestant uprising. They, they were afraid of this uh, renewed confidence in, among Protestants in their own countries. They began to engage in more repression. Philip of Spain, for example, started... Um, an inquisition up in the Netherlands. In Scotland, which was in a separate country from England, uh, with close ties to Catholic France, Protestants contacted Elizabeth's officials down in London to discuss some kind of uh, Anglo-Scots union. In 1560, uh, Presbyterian, that's um, Scots Calvinist, uh, insurrection broke out 
intended to set up a Calvinist society. Catholic France sent thousands of troops uh, to put down this rebellion. Elizabeth in England responded with a counter-intervention, sending thousands of troops north to help the Presbyterians. As it happened, the French expedition was turned back by storms. Uh, the Presbyterians um, triumphed with English help. They regarded the storms as providential, of course. Um, Scott, the revolution triumphed, and Scotland became um, uh, a Calvinist realm, Presbyterian uh, realm. And this is a clear case of, of forcible regime promotion. In fact, it's two, it's a, a promotion by France that actually didn't go very well, and a counter-promotion by, by England and, and Scotland. And it was a smart strategic move. Um, Elizabeth, while she, his, historians disagree about how devout a Protestant she was, she was uh, a very prudent states, stateswoman, statesperson. Um, and figured she was making Scotland from a vassal of France into an ally uh, of England, and that's what she did. So there was a geostrategic logic at work, but it turned on these transnational ties and events of Protestants versus Catholics. The story doesn't end there, however. Uh, with Protestantism on the march in the British Isles, uh, Calvinists in France, called Huguenots, gained courage. Uh, at the same time, Catholics in France stepped up persecution out of fear. In 1562, a Huguenot rebellion broke out, and Elizabeth, um, her advisors, encouraged her in this. Uh, you know, she was on a roll. This had worked in Scotland. She sent an expedition to France to help the Huguenots. This one failed. It became um, a, sort of a mini quagmire for England, and the French expedition had to go back having, having failed. Now, all of this ferment, there's one more piece of this, and I'll, and I'll stop at the 16th century for the time being. Um, all of this ferment seeped into the Netherlands as well, then ruled by Catholic Spain. Uh, Calvinists in the Netherlands rebelled in 1567. So Elizabeth takes the throne in 1558, Scottish rebellion in 1560, French rebellion in 1562, Dutch rebellion in 1567. Spain sent a massive expedition north to put down this rebellion, and a few years later, um, some English troops, some German uh, Protestant troops, and some Huguenot troops from France all marched into the Netherlands to fight on behalf of the Protestants. And this war dragged on for many years. Eventually, the Protestants won independence in the northern Netherlands um, and set up a Protestant republic. This is kind of the ancestor of the current uh, Netherlands, Kingdom of the Netherlands. So to sum up what was happening here, an exogenous event, the death of Mary Tudor of England in 1558, led to a regime change in England, which had demonstration effects in Scotland, which tempted both French Catholic and English Protestant rulers to intervene militarily in Scotland. In English success in Scotland had demonstration effects elsewhere in Northwestern Europe. There were more foreign regime promotions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So foreign regime uh, promotion is, in a sense, self-multiplying. A lot of what I say in the book is, that you can have an exogenous event like the death of a monarch, and it sets off a cycle of endogenous sorts of events like rebellions, uh, contagion, foreign regime promotions, more rebellions, and that, that sort of thing. So it's a self-multiplying phenomenon. There were, um, and this is in part because of these transnational networks of, of Protestants, particularly Calvinists, who communicated uh, very intensely with each other. Uh, the nerve center of Calvinism was in Geneva, where Calvin himself lived. 
Um, uh, but uh, it's very clear if you look at history that, that you can, you know, look at the, that shock in England seeing a whole, a whole uh, feedback system. Now, things did eventually calm down in northwestern Europe. Uh, but the same basic struggle was to uh, reignite a few years later in Central Europe, triggered by another succession crisis, this one in the Holy Roman Empire, and that spiraled uh, through a revolt in Bohemia into the, the horrific Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War, of course, is about a lot more than religion, but the trigger of it, the revolt in Bohemia, had a, uh, in large part a religious uh, cause. So, um, so that's a story that helps us move toward an explanation of this um, micro-variation you see in, in the bar graph. Again, I'm not arguing that there's continuous ideological violence and that I have a new paradigm that, that we don't have to think about material power uh, or wealth anymore. Uh, far from it. Um, but there are p times and places where th these things start to matter when you have these transnational contests over the, uh, the right regime, and, and certain events can trigger all sorts of um, reactions. Now let me pull us back to the present. Now the question I, I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, how unusual are these ongoing, arduous, frustrating efforts by the United States to build up some kind of, uh, some kind of democratic or more democratic regime in Iraq and Afghanistan? And again, if you look at this history, they're not looked at very abstractly, they're not that unusual. Uh, Elizabethan England did a lot of this sort of thing and lots of great powers have done this sort of thing as well in the past half millennium. And the analogy isn't perfect. Um, the most important difference between what the United States is, is trying to do now in parts of the Muslim world um, and what I was talking about a minute ago, early modern Europe, is that England was intimately connected with the struggles in Scotland, France, and the Netherlands, by which I mean uh, England was also divided between Catholic and Protestant. Whereas the United States today is an outsider to uh, the regime struggles in the Muslim world in the sense that the United States is not a Muslim country and is, it doesn't, you know, has no chance of becoming one. The United States has injected itself for uh, a variety of reasons into ongoing ideological contests in uh, the Muslim world. But having said that, the, the ruling ideology of a given Muslim country has some bearing on the country's foreign alignment. So the United States has strategic reasons to get involved um, so a Taliban-run Afghanistan was just prone to be, prone to be not only anti-democratic, but, um, but anti-American. So that's a, a brief treatment of this micro question about um, variation. Now I want to turn to the macro questions. How do we explain the, uh, the big waves within which these periods of tension and calm alternate? And for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on uh, what I think is the most important question, at least for, for us now, how do these big waves um, of forcible regime promotion and all, all the ideological strife that underlies them, how do they come to an end? Because they do end. I answer the question in, in a couple of steps. And the first is to note what is uh, constant throughout these each of these big waves, namely, and I've alluded to this already, a long transnational struggle carried on by agents, by elites uh, within and across states over a question that Aristotle asked 2,300 years ago, what is the best regime? What's the best way to order society? And it's this struggle that conditions rulers' actions. 
What keeps this question from being decided for such long periods? Well, it turns out that a necessary condition uh, is the exist for the prolongation of one of these long ideological struggles that feeds these long periods of force of regime promotion. Necessary condition is at least one state is exemplifying each contending regime type, not just exemplifying but flourishing under it. What, what do I mean by this, exemplifying and flourishing? Well, in, early, in the early modern case, the Catholic Protestant 16th, 17th century cases, uh, Spain and France were Catholic exemplars. These were Europe's greatest powers at the time. Um, they both provided moral and sometimes material support, as I've already said, for Catholic elites who faced Protestant um, enemies in their own countries. England, which was a second-tier power, uh, became the Protestant exemplar under Elizabeth. There were other states bidding to be the Protestant champion. Um, um, the Palatinate in, in the Holy Roman Empire was, was the most vigorous of these, but that was a, a very small state. Um, in any case, uh, England provided an encouraging example of Protestant success and also provided some material support, as I've already said. How do we know that the existence of these exemplars helped prolong the transnational ideological contest? Well, I argue it's because each of these contests only comes to, uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about the first one, the Wars of Religion one. That one only uh, started to fade away when a third regime type, one that transcended the other two, uh, emerged and began to flourish. And I'll, I'll call that third regime type tolerant, just to keep it simple. It could be Catholic or Protestant, uh, or confessionalist historians at the time put it. But it differed from these regimes that I've been talking about in that it tolerated religious dissent. Um, its rulers were not threatened by the growth of uh, another type of Christianity within their realm or in another country. They might have cared about it for other reasons, but it, didn't, it was no longer a threat to their power. A number of countries throughout this period tried toleration as a policy, a kind of modus vivendi, a temporary arrangement. Um, some of the Holy Roman emperors, some of the kings of France uh, had done so for many decades. Um, issued edicts saying, uh, you know, we tolerate, you can practice, if you're a Calvinist, you can practice as long as you don't go out and convert people, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but these were edicts, they were reversible at the will of the monarch. Uh, they were not a matter, a constitutional matter enshrined in law, um, very, uh, very hard to reverse. Um, the, the first significant exception to this was the a country I've already mentioned, the United Provinces of the Netherlands, which began to do this in the early 17th century. The story of the emergence of Dutch toleration is very complicated, it's, it's fascinating. What I want to stress here is that by the middle of the 17th century, the Netherlands, still officially a Calvinist state, it's important to note that, um, was openly allowing other Protestants, Lutherans, Unitarians, um, Catholics, and Jews, and some other uh, groups that are, probably no longer exist, uh, to practice openly. And it was known the Netherlands was known internationally for this, and it attracted all sorts of religious refugees from other states. So Spinoza was, was an example. Um, now, 
European elites at the time seem to have viewed the Netherlands' toleration with distaste. There's lots of interesting writing on this. Um, but they also viewed at the same time the success of the Netherlands with, with some envy. Um, let me try to get this back on. And, whoops, yeah. Um, thanks. Here's a table of, with some statistics from Paul Kennedy and Angus Madison. Um, notice the Dutch population at the bottom is small, uh, quite small compared to, say, Russia or France. But the 17th century is what historians sometimes call the, the, uh, the Dutch golden century. Uh, the Netherlands became really uh, Europe's leading trading power, punched way above its weight. And we have copious documentation of other Europeans noticing this, um, asking, you know, how are they doing this? How is this small country that didn't even, it didn't even exist um, until the 1580s? Uh, how is it rising so fast? And, and so on. And the answers are very complex, and people still argue, scholars still argue about that. But one answer that English writers in the, at the time, in the 17th century, kept stressing was, it's the harmoniousness of Dutch society. Uh, since the early 17th century, there had been no civil wars to disrupt uh, Dutch commerce, to sap the strength of society, to divide it, to threaten secession. Um, and many writers focused on Dutch religious toleration as a way to explain that Dutch societal harmony. Uh, they wrote, uh, William Temple is a leading one, but there are a, a number of others who were noticing, and, and partly they were arguing for toleration back in their own country. So, so English who favored religious toleration, England went to the Netherlands to, and wrote about it and said, people get along here, it's a very wealthy state, it's very strong, um, they're harmonious, they don't worship together, but it's okay. They, um, uh, all, the, all that the Dutch state cares about is loyalty to the state. If you declare a loyalty to the state, you can be Catholic, you can be Jewish, what, what have you. The English actually decided to imitate the Dutch after their glorious revolution of 1688 when William of Orange actually began to rule England. Um, England began to rise uh, as well, became the leading sea power in the uh, 18th century. Uh, France, and I'm getting a little ahead, I won't tell, say much about this, but France in the 18th century began to notice as well. Voltaire wrote some uh, major work from England talking about English religious toleration and other things, and the French um, over time began to imitate English uh, religious toleration as well. There are similar stories to this in my other cases. Um, a new regime type would emerge that uh, seemed to transcend the old divisions and was outperforming them in some way. Or a, a different kind of story really is the, the uh, end of the communist capitalist democracy struggle which ends not in a third type of regime, but the actual triumph of one of the regime types. You know, liberal democracy, communism just failed. It was manifestly clear because the Soviet Union was, uh, was failing. But here again, you have exemplary states adding to or detracting from the credibility of a particular regime type, and everybody watching to see how, how good is this regime type? Does it really deliver on its promises? Final thing I want to do in the talk here is to use all of this uh, comparative leverage to illuminate some dynamics in today's world 
that I've already uh, alluded to. I want to turn attention back to the Muslim world today. And Randy uh, said in his introduction, my book is, this, this is the publisher. The book's really not about Islam, but um, it's kind of the, the current day hook. And I do, I do like to think it has some things, uh, some, some things to offer our understanding of what's going on in the Muslim world now. By Muslim world, I mean the set of countries with a majority Muslim uh, population. I think there are implications for countries that have significant Muslim minorities as well, but I, I, I won't address those now. Um, the Middle East, North Africa, Southwest and South Asia, um, and to some extent Muslim countries in Southeast Asia have been experiencing for some years now a high number of, um, a high, high amount of regime unrest, regime instability, um, outside intervention, transnational radical networks, uh, much like the West itself experienced in these earlier periods that I've been talking about. And the causes of this are many, as always, in politics. And it's clear that the, the ongoing Arab awakening, in particular, is about more than ideology. But a major cause of the periodic outbreaks of unrest and repression, of which the Arab awakening is the most recent and spectacular example, uh, is that since the 1920s, long before Osama bin Laden was born, the Muslim world has been torn by one of these transnational ideological struggles. Uh, Muslim elites have been divided over not just how to relate to the United States or what to do about Israel, um, about oil-rich versus oil-poor countries, but over Aristotle's old question, what's the best regime? Specifically, is the best regime one whose laws are given by God uh, or by man? Is the best regime a traditional Islamic one, sometimes called Islamist or Islamist? Or is it a secular one um, whose laws are influenced by ideas of non-Muslim origin, maybe European origin or purportedly just philosophical uh, origins? This Islamist secularist contest goes back into the 19th century at least. Uh, it really began in earnest as a matter of international politics with the end of the Ottoman Empire and the founding of the Secular Republic of Turkey in 1923. The Ottoman Empire had been traditionally, traditional Islamic. Um, it was generally recognized by Muslims as the, as the caliphate, the universal Islamic empire, the sultan, the caliph or successor to the prophet Muhammad. But Mustafa Kemal or Ataturk, uh, the Turkish soldier who overthrew the Ottoman Empire, founded modern Turkey as a secular republic. He openly, Ataturk openly repudiated the notion of uh, divine law. He put the secular state in charge of the seminaries. He systematically and explicitly westernized Turkey. And most of you will know about this. Uh, adopted the Roman alphabet, banned the fez, um, and so on. And was quite open about what he was doing. Um, some remarkable quotations, uh, when you read them now, looking back at what Ataturk said in the 20s and 30s, is quite remarkable. He was so open. And Ataturk had plenty of imitators in other Muslim societies who likewise wanted to modernize uh, those societies, the Shah of Iran, both father and son, uh, elites in Egypt were quite impressed at what Ataturk was doing. Um, Jinnah in Pakistan 
Nasser in Egypt was influenced. Ironically, David Ben-Gurion in Israel, not a Muslim, uh, and uh, so, some others as well. So Ataturk was extremely uh, influential in his effort to secularize Turkish society. All of these societies uh, secularized laws and institutions in the early middle 20th century. While this was happening, a slow backlash uh, began to emerge among traditional Muslims. In the Sunni branch of Islam, this is usually dated to 1928 in the founding of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan. Um, and in the Shia branch of Islam, centered in Iraq and Iran, um, started a few years later. A key figure early on was Ruhollah Khomeini. Um, in, these, in this, call it backlash movement, clergy and laity who believed that secularism uh, was by definition un-Islamic or at least suspect, uh, began to network, write, teach, speak at least quietly, um, teach their youth, uh, that to be a faithful Muslim, one has to live under Sharia or law derived from the Quran and the Hadith or the sayings of the Prophet and not from, um, you know, French civil law or English common law. Most historians say that until the late 1960s, secularism, Ataturk and his followers um, had the momentum, the upper hand, and that this momentum began to shift after 1967 in the Six-Day War when Nasser's Egypt, Nasser was um, kind of spearheading um, secularism in the Arab world uh, when Egypt was humiliated by Israel. And from that point, the Islamists um, proposed solution to the humiliations and troubles of the Muslim world, a return to Islamic law, began to make more sense, began to be more plausible. Saudi Arabia emerged as a champion of Islamism. Uh, he supported the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, when in 1964, Egypt, um, under Nasser, sent thousands of troops to Yemen to promote a secular regime. And here, you can think of Elizabeth I of England uh, Saudi Arabia counter-intervened, not with troops, but with um, material support, um, helping the Islamists in Yemen who were resisting uh, Nasserism. This is sometimes called Nasser's Vietnam. Uh, a few other key events. Uh, in 1973, the oil embargo uh, put Saudi Arabia on steroids, as, as it were. It had lots of money and used some of this to, uh, in the Muslim World League to promote um, Islamism, its, its brand of Islamism against secularism. Then came 1979, the revolution in Iran, uh, which brought about a new energetic rival to the Saudis within the Islamist counter-movement. Um, Iran being Shia, whereas Saudis are, are Sunni. And Iran, one of Iran's big campaigns from, from the first has been to displace Saudi Arabia as a kind of um, exemplar of, of Islamism. And you see on the map, you, you know, the geography, they um, sort of look at each other across the Persian Gulf. Um, Iran has, has tried various means to export Shia Islamism. Um, war against Iraq in, in the 1980s was in part about that, not completely. Support of Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, guerrillas in post-Saddam Iraq uh, more recently. There is uh, one last note about all this. Sunni Islamism, of course, has a very serious schism in it. Uh, the Saudis carry on and promote their Wahhabist variety of Islam. 
al-Qaeda um, and its various affili affiliates have for a couple of decades regarded the Saudis as hypocrites or, or worse, pro-Western, uh, decadent, corrupt, and so on. So both claim to be traditionalists, but they're, uh, they, of course, are at daggers drawn uh, in, uh, politically. So this is a complicated picture, but so was the picture in 16th century Europe. And I just want to stress that the broad outlines are in some ways similar. Uh, for example, just as Sunni and Shia Islamists are rivals, um, Calvinists and Lutherans were sometimes rivals in the 16th and 17th century. At, at times, Lutherans aligned with Catholics against their fellow Protestant Calvinists. Uh, there is a recognizable structure here that's conditioning rulers' actions and, and interactions, and it's recognizable uh, in the Muslim world because, in a sense, we've been here before. Uh, the Weststone history has, um, formally speaking, some similar dynamics in the past. So that being the case, let me close with some attempts at lessons of history as we think about what's happening uh, in the Muslim world. And I think there are some lessons, and they're not all happy ones. First of all, as I've been implying uh, throughout the talk, foreign forcible regime promotion is a normal part of these struggles. The threats and opportunities facing governments give them powerful incentives to do this kind of thing. Um, the Bush administration, once again, figured that an Afghanistan not run by the Taliban would be at least friendlier to U.S. interests. This is similar thinking to that that drove Elizabeth I of England to intervene in some neighboring countries. Um, I should mention that other countries think this way, too, um, doing more covert actions. Um, Iran's leaders are supporting Shia uh, Islamists in Bahrain and Lebanon. Um, Saudi Arabia pushing the opposite way, Sunni Islamists in, in uh, Bahrain and, uh, and elsewhere, and perhaps in Syria. Um, a second lesson is that these forcible regime interventions are common, uh, but they don't end these larger conflicts. They just perpetuate them. They don't end the larger conflict. And I think um, one of the mistakes of the Bush administration, insofar as they were kind of um, aware of some of these dynamics, was to think that in making Iraq a liberal democracy, even, even if that could do it, that would, that would end this grand ideological struggle that's been going on in the Muslim world for, for decades. Uh, what it's done, of course, is just perpetuated, at least so far. Uh, 450 years ago, England exploited the Catholic-Protestant divide in some of its neighboring countries, uh, exploited them, but didn't end them. And so this is a, a lesson for the United States now in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. E even if these occupations turn out well, if they become, if Afghanistan becomes a stable, mature, at least semi-democratic uh, state, and I hope it will, um, Islamism will probably continue to thrive, and the contest that I've been talking about will, will continue. In fact, history shows it's very hard to predict uh, when these contests will end. There's sometimes lulls in them, and uh, political elites think, you know, great, now we can get back to normal, real politique, all this ideological craziness is finished, and then some kind of a shock, a revolution, um, some kind of regime change will happen, and then uh, it will spark the same dynamics and the same uh, sorts of uh, things I've been talking about. So these ideologies have a kind of a whack-a-mole quality to them. You can hit them here, and then they 
they can come up in other places in the same region. The third lesson is uh, a bit of good news. The, the massive grand ideological struggles do finally end. Um, again, you know, Europeans today are certainly much more secular, that's clear, than 500 years ago. Um, but many still identify as Christian, Catholic, or Protestant. But long ago, they ceased fighting about it or being afraid in a political sense of the progress of the other branch of Christianity. Um, Northern Ireland being something of an exception. Northern Ireland is an interesting window, a tragic window on the way most of Europe was at one time. So today, if we want clues as to the future of Islamism, secularism, uh, one thing to do is to watch exemplary states. Uh, more precisely, watch the successes and failures of such states. And I'll, I'll mention one. I'll uh, just talk about Iran quickly one more time, uh, exemplifying a, a particular type of Islamism and, and very determinedly doing so. And so far, one has to say Iran's doing pretty well. Um, it's already a big country, population maybe 66 million, uh, lots of oil. Uh, its location on the Persian Gulf gives, gives it all kinds of advantages. On top of that, I Iran has made enormous strategic gains in the region, partly owing to America's getting rid of its arch enemy, the secularist Saddam Hussein. Um, Iran looks like it could have nuclear weapons in a few years. Um, it's not only the Israelis who worry about this, of course. We know from WikiLeaks that the Saudis are extremely worried about this as well. So Iran has enjoyed a remarkable rise in, in recent years, and this is having um, some effect. On the other hand, Iran's regime is brittle. Um, as we saw in May, June of 2009, when it looked like the regime might fall. But in any case, uh, if Iran, insofar as Iran continues to flourish, um, then Islamism all else being equal, looks more credible, and the movement continues to flourish transnationally. Um, and this is where, and I'm, I'm not going to try to say anything definitive about the Arab Spring or Arab Awakening. It's, it's a moving target, and you know, it's probably things are happening even as, as I speak. But a country like Egypt is extremely important in this regard, too. Uh, we don't know what sort of regime will emerge in Egypt, um, but if it's some kind of secular or maybe uh, democratic hybrid democratic Islamist regime, that will also have uh, implications for this struggle as well. Um, but however the ongoing struggle in the Muslim world turns out, the hardest thing, at least for some Americans, to accept is probably that for all of America's power and wealth, um, we can't decide this for them. It's really up to Muslims to decide collectively, um, perhaps slowly, and perhaps unfortunately with violence, uh, what is the best regime for themselves? So thank you for your time. I, I will stop there. Yes? Uh, I kept hearing echoes of Marx and Weber what you were talking about. You've got a, an engine of change that's dialectic. Mm -hmm. um, well, you mean... The regime against the okay. new regime, whatever that yeah. happens to be. But I keep hearing Weber's notion of cascades of crises of authority. Mm -hmm. And if you look at this, that's sort of what it looks like. The first is to overthrow the authority of the church, and then to overthrow the authority of the king. Yeah. 
and then to decide on what form of rational liberal democracy, you know, we don't consider communism or fascism either rational or democratic. Right, right. The people who were in favor of it did. Yes. And so, does Islam even belong here? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually a counter-revolution because none of this other stuff worked for them. Yeah, I, I, um, I didn't go there in, in the book, and I'll tell you why. I mean, that... Um, I, I don't think that the, the arguments I have don't touch this, um, what I regard as a teleological account of movement of history. I, I don't, I just see, I treat these as, you know, in the way somebody like Tilly or Scotchwell treats revolution. I mean, I think this is comparative history. This is, you see dynamics here, here. I don't trace out a progressive line here. I, I'm not saying there's not one, and I, I, I think I had the publisher send a copy of my book to Frank Fukuyama to see if he, I haven't heard I from him. Think, I don't think Weber would consider it progressive in any sense. In fact, I think he saw it as a negative outcome. Okay. Uh, but in any case, um, okay, progressive, maybe, but, but some kind of it's, it's, it's Hegelian, you're saying some kind of Hegelian or Marxian dialectic at work. Yeah, I just, I just don't know. I mean, maybe. I, I could tell a story, yeah, that uh, exactly that, that I think I have a sentence or two in the book that, you know, Perhaps we could tell a story about, yeah, religious toleration, um, republic, or constitutionalism, See, democracy. What we expect is that Western democracy is about to hit the ball. Yeah. Because we didn't really find the authority that we were looking for. Democracy doesn't answer the problem either. Yeah. Uh, my second point is. Well, uh, just on, on Islam, just on Islam. I mean, if you're right, it, this calls into question. That, but I, I do want to push back on that question, and here's why. Because what, what this tells me is that. Um, a successful exemplary state can give an ideology a, an amazing run. By which I mean, you know, the Soviet, you know, the 30s, even the 50s, a lot of smart people in the West thought the Soviets were going to win because the Soviet Union was growing, industrialized rapidly, beat the Nazis, beat Germany. In the 50s, it was growing again faster than we were, and it was, you know, got Sputnik, for, you know, all that sort of thing. And then, you know, in retrospect, you know, I have a hard time getting my students to take seriously the Soviet Union actually was a real, you know, a serious superpower at one point. Because in retrospect, it, you know, it looks like it had to collapse. But at the time, it didn't look that way. So I, I just resist this kind of, um, I mean, I, I, I just don't know if I can bring the evidence to bear on that. So for that reason, I do think that the struggle in the, in the Muslim world might go on for quite a bit longer, even though to, uh, we can make all kinds of arguments about how Islamism is atavistic and irrational. Can I make, I just yeah. Make one more point Please. Uh, is it possible there's something about monotheism that makes people uh, react to this kind of crisis in authority? Because East Asia seems to be making a much more, uh, not necessarily peaceful, but their accommodation to Western notions about what is the best regime seems to differ. Well. In a large, to a large extent from Islam. Now, Islam is sort of the cousin of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And. It's just an All right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what would it? I mean, the, on the other hand, Christianity is monotheistic. Although Muslims say it's not monotheistic, but Christians say it's monotheistic. Um, same yeah, yeah. So, um, so all, all this. You're, you're asking, is it monotheistic cultures that have these sorts of struggles? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I actually I've never thought of that. How would that? How would that work? What, what is it about being monotheistic that? Well, yeah. Millennial thinking. Uh huh. Okay. Right. Maybe other people don't even have no, maybe. Yeah. about what is the best regime. No, they don't care. Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. You're Although, well, let's see. I'm thinking of the Cultural Revolution as you say that. So um, that was uh, kind of a hyper, hyper example of this. I don't know. I mean, that, but, but the, the question is, I don't know. You set me thinking. I, I don't know how to answer that. But I, I can see. My job. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Good. Yes. Yeah, we're talking more about your title, the slash of ideas. What, what is an idea? Sometimes it's secular is an idea, it's tolerance and an idea. Yeah. Yeah. And you have Right. Yeah. Well, it's no defense, but it, it's a book title. It, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was better than any. No, it's. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a very uh, real politique defense. Um, but I'll defend it. I'll give it a limited defense. I mean, it, uh, insofar as a title that gets your attention can also be precise. I do think it captures. Uh, I wanted to talk to my editor. I want to call it clashes of ideas because no, that's really cumbersome. It's hard to say. You want singular. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll go with the singular. But the idea is, I'm talking about a particular type of idea, right? Um, Ideas about the best regime. So I thought about calling it class of ideologies or clashing regime types. Uh, a book I really love that has gotten insufficient play is uh, a book edited by David Skidmore some years ago called Contested Social Orders. Came out in '97, edited volume, Vanderbilt Press, and I, you know, I got I learned a lot from that book. And he he uses this term um, social orders, which I think probably is a more uh, accurate, but also a little more cumbersome. Uh, label on it, but that's that's what I'm talking about. So not not any, you know, ideas is such a vague term. Um, well, like the question is, is it secularism? Is that an idea? Ah, is yes. Or, or is tolerance an idea? Yeah, I mean, I or think these. Well, yes, they were. I mean, they, the Dutch. Uh, it was quite interesting. There were there were writers. Um, in Huguenot writers after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, 1572, began to write in this vein that what, what we need, what a good polity needs, is a tolerant monarch who won't you know, go slaughter religious dissidents. And the Dutch were quite influenced by their Calvinist brethren in France and began to write about how, um, and you know, this is coming out of a practical situation. Some Dutch were still Catholic. Um, and it was in the interest of the Dutch Calvinists to keep the Dutch Catholics in the fold rather than have them go back to Spain to live under the rule of, of uh, the Habsburgs. So, um, so you can put it this way, they, um, because of that practical political need, uh, constructed theories that then had a feedback effect, right, that, that, that actually make, it certainly make a lot of sense to us today, but they made a lot of sense at the time, you know, about um, the, uh, in particular about the, the role of conscience, that, that it's actually Christian to respect conscience, not to coerce belief, uh, and that sort of So I consider um, toleration, yeah, to be a, a political idea. It's, it's kind of orthogonal to the ones that were at play in this. Uh, and I, as for secularism in the Muslim world, yes, it's certainly, you know, if you read uh, some of Ataturk's statements and the justifications given by him and his followers and disciples elsewhere. Um, they are, as they see it, constructing a sort of ideology. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's a, you know, it's a far too broad a word, but I think it works. Yeah. Yes? Um, I did notice the definition of the term regime, and it seems like a lot of different things are going into that. I mm -hmm. follow them on John's book. Yeah. So, 
at times it seemed to be a religious distinction, but then you're also using terms like liberal democracy, yeah. communism, and fascism. So what what would count as being characteristic of a regime, and what, what wouldn't count? Yeah. Well, um, it ha it's necessarily a very broad definition. I, I borrow, I don't know the wording exactly. Da David Easton has this very general definition of, you know, rules of the game, basic institutions governing common life. Um, so in, in sometimes in play, and they always have to do, probably always have to do with provision of public goods or collective goods. Um, they have to do with the distribution of power and influence within a polity. But um, that plays out very differently in different times and places. So um, the early modern period, which again looks like religion to us, um, what was um, a regime question in, in the following sense. Um, if, when a, a polity switched from Catholic to Protestant, the crown, among other things, the crown would seize lands that belonged to religious orders um, and redistribute them to, to friends or keep them in the hands of the crown. And so this, this leads to a redistribution of power um, and to a different way to govern everyday life in, in the, the subject's lives. So the, um, the Catholic Church in medieval Europe has enormous sway over certain institutions in society, marriage and birth and death, and uh, also owns a lot of property. So in a Protestant realm, it doesn't have that anymore. It's, it's uh, much more in the hands of the state, which uh, typically in a Protestant realm, I mean, it's, it's not the same thing as Ataturk's, but there's, there's a reason why Thomas Hobbes is writing in Protestant England at the time. He really wants to focus religious power in the, in the crown. And Protestant realms typically did that. They put the, the secular authorities in charge of, of um, religion, or at least you know, removed that from uh, the purview of Rome. So that's an example of what I, I'm not able to get too much more precise than that, but some um, questions that are no longer, some religious questions that are no longer political were political at the time that had to do with um, the power of the monarchy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the nobility and the rest of society. So does that, I don't know if that gets, well, gets us started. Thinking, if there are ways to, it seemed like you would face a choice in a lot of situations where you could define a regime according to sort of just uh, objective indicators like what the political institutions mm -hmm. look like. Yeah. But I, I can't figure out which of the sort of basic variables that you're interested in. So you showed the map of, yeah. of the Muslim of the Muslim world yeah. regime type. So I hear regime type, I think it's gonna say, you know, are they democracy or right. yeah. yeah. You've got religion, so it makes me wonder, well, what if you looked, created a similar map and showed, you know, the level of democracy according to Freedom House or something like yeah. that? Yeah, right. And then the map could look different. It would look different. Maybe it would look the same, but then right. so, Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm getting, I, I'll just say I'm getting historically contingent here in the book, I'm, and I'm saying, um, you know, the categories we have di didn't exist back then, no, no, nobody, I mean, democracy, people, some scholars remember democracy from the ancient world, but it really wasn't a category, so in the time I'm looking at, so I want to enter, but they still fought and died for what they considered to be a regime question, so I, you know, necessarily just keep it very abstract, um, having to do with, you know, that, and that's the best I can do. Okay. In the back there. Uh, well, following on 
Yeah, right. Yes, yes. I, I, you know, I almost said that instead of Iran. It's a bit, bit more, bit more a hopeful <laughs> story for a lot of us. Um, yeah, I think, and it's clear Turkey is having an effect. If certainly rhetorically, if you listen to some of the Arab awakening people. Um, you know, they'll, they'll say, we are, we're very impressed by Justin's Development Party in Turkey and what they're doing. And the, the statistics are, as you say, quite, the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago had an article comparing Turkey under the AK party with what came before. And the, the growth is, is quite remarkable. It really is doing better. Um, tried to join the European Union. It looks like that's not going to happen anytime soon. But um, is having, you know, cutting out it. What's that? Why should you? Well, no, fair enough. Right. Why? Um, exactly. It's probably, yeah, counting its blessings that it was rebuffed. Uh, um, but in any case, yeah, the, the answer is yes. And there is a question, I, and I put this to friends, uh, colleagues in, in um, Middle Eastern studies. A, a non-Arab state like Iran or Turkey, how much? Because, you know, when you think about the, the Iranian near revolution two years ago, it didn't spark revolution in the Arab world, but something that happened in Tunisia uh, last December did. So it, do, it does seem, you know, Mark Lynch and Greg Gauss keep saying, that this shows that the Arab world is a thing. It, it really, so I, I'm a little bit guarded about saying Turkey and even Iran have influence in the Arab world, but the Muslim world is much, much bigger than the Arab world, of course. Um, you know, most Muslims are not, are not actually Arab, so. Yeah, but anyway, I, yeah, short answer is yes. Turkey uh, is, I, I think it's an exemplar because I have lots of evidence that it's being watched very carefully and in, in, in inspiring some imitation. So, yeah. Alex? Yeah, the ancient Greece, yes. Um, I have a little uh, epigram at the beginning of a chapter about the Corsairan civil war in Thucydides, which has some of the you know oligarchy and democracy, and and um, you know the Athenians would go in and help the Demos, and the Spartans would go in and help the oligarchs. So yeah, I think that's also the Guelphs and Ghibellines in medieval Holy Roman Empire, pretty similar. You see this kind of trans, we'll call it transnational, but transpolity these networks and these interventions. So I do think it travels, uh, it travels well. Now, yeah, th th there's, a <laughs> there's a point at which if you go back far enough into medieval Europe, it, I'm, I'm just reluctant to use it because I don't think the polities are, you know, self, um, I don't think, I, I, it's hard to argue that the polities, if you go back far enough, are discreet enough, soft, you know, anything like semi-sovereign. So I made a call. I, I did you know, quite a bit of reading and I'm aware of the controversies that historians engage in over you know, whether the estates of the Holy Roman Empire can be regarded as, as 
sovereign or semi-sovereign or you know, hemi-demi-semi-sovereign or what, what, whatever. Um, this is, of course, this is famous for being the time for IR people when the sovereign state emerged and 1648 is the magic date and, and so on. And, and then Steve Krasner has, has uh, called that into question. But um, uh, So I don't, I guess, without getting really precise about when I think medieval Europe becomes modern Europe, yeah, there's a point at which I don't think this works because the, um, the, the political units, the overlapping jurisdictions are so jumbled that, um, you know, I can't, I, my, my ground rule that the target state has to be uh, sovereign doesn't work anymore. But I do, I will say this, that I mean, I've had long arguments with, with Dan Nexon about this, who thinks I should have just made this about a, a kind of universal thing. And you can say a lot about empires, formal empires. Look, in, in, in imperial systems, I see a lot of this happening too. And I, I'm, I'm certainly not against utilizing some of this material, theoretical, conceptual material to understand those. Um, I just didn't do it in this, in this book. I really wanted to target IR people who are interested in, in you know, Westphalian sovereign states and how they interact. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, uh, I would just answer that in terms of that I think the units are, the units are, units of analysis are similar enough so that you can. But the norms of the system are quite different. Oh, the norms are different. Very, quite a bit. Yeah, so yeah. Well, in, in one sense it does, yeah. I mean, certainly, I mean, it sort of gets back to the, the question here, I think. Um, yes. Um, but the remarkable thing is the, you know, I'll, I'll put it, this is a little bit crudely analytically, but you know, you change a few words and you see the same things happening. So that's what impresses me. Is it again? This is comparative history. Um, it's doing violence to uh, uh, the inner subjectivity of you know across time and space. But it is also um, making an argument that um, even if you control for the very different. Uh, normative structures in place. You see similar dynamics. When you have a legitimacy crisis that spans a, a several countries at once, meaning you will have, which I define in, in agentic terms as you have agents across these states who share a vision and they communicate, you're going to find similar uh, dynamics. And when you don't have that, you'll, you'll find these more quiet periods. That's, that's the big claim. Randy. I didn't, I did not say, um, whoa, I did not say how you get the up. I tried to say why you get the, the down and you, the, the down, the periods fizzle out when one regime type is manifestly superior to its competitors. And then what that does, so I'll tell quick, can I just tell a quick story, yeah, very familiar story, the end of the Cold War. It has a lot of aspects to it, right, but one, that's very clear to me is um, by the late 70s, the Soviet, certainly the Chinese know, you know, the game is up. And the Soviet, some younger Soviet leaders like Gorbachev know, uh, you're getting the picture, the game is up. And um, so when China abandons, not Leninism, but Marxism, 
And then a few years later, the Soviet Union starts to reform in a capitalistic and democratic direction. You see these effects in what we used to call the third world, where um, both certainly communists and also um, you know, social democrats who basically would work with communists, would include them in their governments, um, begin to lose hope in anything like a, a communist model or a you know, heavily in, in state socialism. Okay, so, so what that does is it calms down these transnational networks and, um, you know, is an example, uh, the Reagan administration of all, of all things uh, starts to, you know, abandon these anti-communist dictators in the third world, uh, starting with um, Marcos in the Philippines. Um, so that's what I regard as the closing years of one of these grand ideological struggles. So the causal... Yeah, the causal story there is the Soviet communism fails because the Soviet Union fails. You'd say it. Yeah, right. No, it's fine. I never said it. I never said it was all about ideas. I, I, if, I, if I said that, I, I retract it. Mice are no longer the problem. Uh, yeah. So then Mosquitoes are going to go. Oh. Oh, well, then it doesn't. I, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So, right. And then you try not, yeah. and then, you know, just yeah. But isn't this like just an adept, is this like an addendum to the hegemonic cycle of literature? You know, I haven't tried to map it on, I mean, if you, to map on a timeline of, you know, some of, the, some of that literature. I, I don't know what it looks like. I will, all I do in the book, I gesture in that direction by saying um, forcible regime promotion is, is a tool of, can be seen as a tool of hegemony. You know, a state can use it to extend its power. And it does that materially by gaining friends and eliminating enemies in other countries. It also does it by um, just, you know, by doing that it makes itself look stronger and it impresses others and inspires more imitation. And I, you know, I are just very vague about how all this works. Right? People have different theories, but I, I do think that hegemony is part of this story, and you know, Krasner, Krasner said he thinks this is a book about hierarchy, um, and that, that's fine as long as he, you know, as long as he likes the book, um, he, he can call it what he wants, but, um, but I do think that's right, actually, all kidding aside, I think, but that's not what I stressed, I stressed the, more, the transnational dynamics and the incentives facing governments, but the big picture is, yeah, um, you know, dueling hegemons uh, use this, you, and, you know, the one way to think about uh, resistance to the United States in the Muslim world, which has to do with regime, you know, the United States is trying to 
change regimes in the Muslim world. The resistance is, in large part, anti-hegemonic, right? We know that. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think it touches. I just don't quite know how to make it fit together um, closely. Yeah. I think I saw you first. I don't, I don't think my, my argument doesn't equip me to answer how that's going to come out. I, all I, I'll put it this way. My, my reading about how these things emerged um, convinced me that there's a lot of contingency in the story, by which I mean a difference that may seem trivial at time t can become huge at time t plus 10. Um, uh, so uh, let's see, an example. Um, well, well, I mean, the, the, yeah, the way we think about Catholic and Protestant, right? That's just not. It, it, it's, it matters in some realms. It does not matter in the political realm. So um, all I can say is it, it, things, things might ha this thing could go a number of directions between the United States and China, between so-called authoritarian capitalism and democratic capitalism. Um, and one is that uh, they become... Um, that the, the democratic, non-democratic becomes a focal point and the capitalism is beside the point, sort of like between fascism and capitalist democracy, right? The fascist states were kind of heavily state-driven, but basically capitalist, so big, you know, big combinations that, you know, dominated the state. But, um, but that didn't matter so much. It really was the, the political form that mattered. And I don't have a big story about why that happened. I think it's contingent. So I think there, you know, the good news is in practice there are things we can do with China to make sure that doesn't become a focal point. The problem is, you know, we care about human rights, and that's, you know, so we don't just, or a lot of Americans care about human rights very deeply, and the Chinese don't like being lectured on human rights, and they, they hit back and, and so on. So it, it could go any number of directions, but it doesn't have to be the case that eventually there's a, a clash of ideas between authoritarian capitalism and democratic capitalism, but, but, it, but it might. It's, it's contingent on some other things. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's important whether we whether we understand the political um, ordering of a society to be causing the exemplar status or the economic success in order for that to, to proliferate throughout the system, or do you think it's like, oh well, you know, they're working with about what they're doing? You think that's the process by which ideas spread in this model? Yeah, I think I think it spreads. In, in both ways, that the exemplary, you know, the imitation effect is, is very powerful in you know underlying these these pictures, um, and a second effect is this regime promotion. I mean, it's just you know they, they are endogenous. It's, it's clear. I mean, there's a lot of endogeneity here, and I you know that's just the way it, it, it works. Um, so I, I don't want to choose between those two. 
But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm paying attention myself to China and imitations of China. You know, the, a few years ago, Russia, I think Medvedev said some nice things about, you know, China is showing the way that you don't have to, you don't have to go with the hegemonic model, meaning, you know, ours, the, the American, in order to flourish. China is pointing it a different way. And I think, you know, because I'm alert to that, I think that's a really important statement because it's not just for Russians, but for maybe for world politics. Um, ironically, I think Medvedev is more, seems to be more of a liberal than Putin, but I, I don't know, I can't figure out. But that's the sort of thing I do, I do pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, yes? Would you say there is, uh, and I'll try to simplify this at the end, um, the role of ideas and uh, just kind of, is it, is it more of an independent variable that, uh, that various actors are kind of reacting to, or is it kind of, uh, can it be used by, by leaders as a tool, or is it kind of, like, can it be used as a tool to motivate, uh, I guess, populations in, in support of their policies, for example? Yeah. Yeah, because it's but it is it is both, and I don't I don't choose sides. Is, is there a logic of appropriateness of work here, a logic of consequences? I just try to you know abstract from that very important issue. It's it, I don't I try to make the argument not turn on either logic being dominant. I you see what I mean? So so I will say, look, um, yeah, on balance, it looks like logic of consequences is more is more predominant. Um, Elizabeth, I mentioned a minute ago, Elizabeth is um, her. Privately, probably devout, but it doesn't. Uh, often she refuses to help Protestants overseas, and they feel betrayed. And you know, what kind of uh, Christian are you? You know, we're we're being we're getting killed over here. And she just doesn't think it's in her interest as the the monarch of, of England to, to help them. And then you know, a few years later, she'll help them when she has more money or their you know arrival is starting to. So um, is that is that did I get your question right? That, you know, is it strategic action versus more kind of normative? There's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say this is a straight rationalist story. Um, yeah. Well, I do, I'm only interested in one type of transnational network, and I call them TINs, transnational ideological networks, to distinguish myself from Keck and Sikki with TANs. Um, but so I think this is an under, this is, these are more conflictual um, sorts yeah, of groups. Like the, so that, yeah, so that's one thing. They're not, not just any INGO would do today. The Muslim Brotherhood, yes. Um, you know, Amnesty International probably probably not. Although you could make an argument that they're about regime type too, I suppose. But they're not really what I'm looking at. Okay. So, so that's one way. I, I do try to bound what I'm talking about, define it fairly fairly precisely. Um, and then, as far as their strength versus exemplary states, yeah, yeah um, that's a good question. I mean, I will say I make I sounded fairly categorical just now, but. Um, after Napoleon fell, you, it wasn't clear there was a Republican exemplar 
in Europe, you know, the United States was there, and Europeans definitely paid a lot of attention to the United States, but the French Republic was gone. But you still had these very influential underground liberal networks all through Europe who were operating in part off the memory of what once was a previous generation, the French Republic and all the little republics that it spread all over Europe. So that might be a case where you had the, the networks were doing a lot of work and they fomented, they, they tried re revolutions every few years in the 1820s, 1830, finally 1848 was the big, the big one. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there actually isn't a real exemplar. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I. I do think that it. it I, that one case, is probably true, and but it's very hard. I guess. I guess my. I would, end up concluding it, it. It's possible. It doesn't seem to last that long. It really, really helps to have an exemplar for. And also to give material support. I mean, to give to fund. You know, if an exemplar is out funding its people, and helping its guys. Um, I don't, I mean, the, for these sorts of networks, again, because I define them fairly narrowly, what they want is to run a state okay. or a polity. That's what they want. They're not happy so not doing it. Exactly, yeah. So, we're, and that means a regime type. They have to be after, this is only the type of network that wants to alter a regime, not to okay. make life have, better for we people. We have Fox and MSNBC. Competing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for a grand, the grand historical sweep and a provocative talk. <laughs>